Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. It is Monday. We are fresh back from Paris. We are a little bit jet lagged, not too bad. But uh, I'm here with Jamie, and we're just going to put a bow on the 2019 French Open. We'll wrap this thing up. And Jamie, welcome. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. Um, good to be back. Hard to believe that uh, less than 24 hours ago we were witnessing uh, Rafa Mania. Probably as good a place as any to start. I, I would just say, sort of backing up and introing this, this always happens at these events, that there's all sorts of drama and it's scheduling and outside courts and who's and, you know, who's going to a press conference before whom, and then ultimately all we remember is uh, what happens in the final. So Ash Barty breaks through and wins the women's title. I can't remember uh, a title that's been better received in the tennis community. Male, female, contemporaries, players that she had beaten were tweeting out... Uh, how happy they were to see her, and then Rafa did his thing, and everything else has sort of been rendered deep subplot. Um, whether or not Djokovic helped facilitate a rain delay and who played on what court when and selling double sessions for the men's semifinals, it all sort of gets rendered as uh, as marginalia. But uh, may as well start with Rafa, since uh, that was the last match played and also, I think, the 1A takeaway. Uh, you watched the match where? On NBC, I assume? Yeah, um, I watched a little bit of it, and then I was following from Twitter. Uh, I was in the car, so beginning of the match, great. And then, you know, of course, tailed off a little bit there. But you feel for team a little bit, but it's just incredible. I mean, we talk about it, and I, I don't know. Someone tell me what the secret is. Why is Rafa so damn good? At the French Open. I'm out of uh, explanations. I feel like I'm out of, I've sort of exhausted the store of, of adjectives. I mean, I, I tweeted this yesterday. When I first started covering tennis in the late 90s, the big question was, would anybody win 12 majors? Could Pete Sampras do it and tie this record that everybody thought was untouchable? Now we have a guy, first of all, we, we have not only Pete Sampras, but then three players subsequent, not to mention Serena on the women's side. But uh, we have a guy who's won as many French Opens as Emerson won majors. And keep in mind, Nadal was one break in the fifth set against Federer two years ago from winning the Australian Open, which would have given him the double career slam. So it's not as though he's only doing this on clay. He's up to 18. Roger Federer obviously now is a 20 majors, Djokovic at 15. But Nadal on clay, I I don't know. I, I got nothing for you. It's, um, it's, it's the offense. It's the defense. I think he really benefits from best of five. I just think the way he approaches the sport and his short-term memory and this, I mean, every locker room cliche, the never-say-die attitude in the heart of a champion, all that is expressed in a best-of-five match in a way that maybe it isn't in best-of-three. But, I mean, again, we were here, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, right? and we were saying the, oh, no. the confidence isn't there, the wheels seem to have come off, Fanini, right. team, and when you, you looked at the matches that he had lost, it's a possible, the matches he had lost on clay. In the lead-up. In the lead-up. And he plays well in Rome. And gets a tired Djokovic to the final of Rome. So that's some nice momentum going in. And then he's just, I mean, he played as well in those seven matches. He dropped two sets. One was to go fan when he's already up two sets to love. He beat Federer. He, you know, he rationed his energy. And then that match yesterday, he lost that second set. And thereafter, I've never seen him play better. I mean, right. that, that was Max Rafa for the last hour of that match. I said this when we did our our preview right before the tournament, but when you see qualifier, qualifier, 
for Nadal after the lead up that he had, I literally said to you, how could you not like pick against him? Because it was just, it just seemed so set by, you know, whoever from above that was like saying he's got to win it again. And it was like you said, seeing him after losing that second set was, it's just crazy. I just don't know how someone across the net can not take that into consideration it's so demoralizing. um you know so I, I i said this in our like, quick little round table but for for team the only thing i felt like he could really latch on to in this final was just belief because the only person that i think can really ever beat rafa in that scenario is somebody that just i know it's like a it's another cliche but just has nothing to lose and just really goes out there and has just no opinion or no idea of the historical impact and and everything that that rafa has in paris i think rafa can beat rafa sometimes i mean there's sometimes where he's i mean this uh, one thing i think is really interesting about him and you know i mean there are, there are countless angles we can take here I'll, I'll give you a few one of them is just this absolute self-belief that seems to have come very quickly. I mean, again, this was a guy, he had that brutal loss in the Australian Open final to Djokovic, had a very quiet, injury-plagued spring, was not his usual peerless self in the lead-ins, and then he gets to that event, and you've just unshakable confidence. I think you raise a really good point, which is the fact that he got there, he had played two fewer hours than team, he hadn't had physically taxing matches. I think this is really relevant, too. He didn't have emotionally taxing matches. The, the Roger match, he got back on Federer on clay and wasn't really in any trouble, straight set win. I mean, I think the fact that he didn't expend much mental energy was relevant, too. But, again, I just I think, I, I think I wrote about this yesterday, too. This big three, they just keep going. I mean, bless Dominic team, and I think he did make some progress. He reached the final last year, reached the final this year, so he didn't pick up any ranking points. But I think this was progress. But... He, um, you know, he, he mustered one set against Nadal. But Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, they are going as strong as ever. This is the 10th straight major that one of the three of them won. They're 1-2-3 in the rankings. They've won, I think it was the 31 out of the 38 majors played this decade. Remember a few years ago when it was, oh, the big three is starting to come undone, and you knew it had to happen, and great one while it lasted, but now move over, boys. Here comes the new generation. I left this tournament thinking Nadal head and shoulders above the field on clay. Djokovic head and shoulders above the field on hard courts. One of the three of them on grass. This big three era, these guys right now at ages 37, almost 38, 33 for Rafa, and I guess 32, 87 for Djokovic. These guys have as much a stronghold on men's tennis now as they did 10 years ago. I mean, it is just incredible. Three of the four semifinalists. We almost had a uh, a Djokovic-Nadal final. I mean, it's just this big three is just extraordinary anyone going to ever be a better clay court player than rafael nadal would you say now done greatest ever on clay greatest ever i mean i it's it's funny we were uh records you know records tend to get broken we never thought anyone was going to eclipse hank aaron's home run total or roger maris someone will eventually have more consecutive hits than joe dimaggio but we were talking about unbreakable records in tennis um Here's what you want. You want to take a stab at any of the ones we came up with? Huh. One, of, one of them was a 70-68 match, right? Oh, okay. And, and right, now, right. I mean, that's impossible. Now, of course, the rules yes, are yes, such yes. that we're never going to have that. Uh, but we're never going to have matches where both players serve 100 aces. And, <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, that was, just, that was just a Looney Tunes match. I don't think you know, Tracy Austin winning a major at age 16. 
don't think, think that's so. going to happen. Um, but I would put Nadal winning 12, 12 French Opens. It's crazy. Uh, we were sort of have fun with the math. Someone yesterday wrote to me and they said he could basically lose in the first round for the yeah. ne- next 90 <laughs> years and still <laughs> 90 five, matches and have a 500, 500 record. record. Um, I just repeated that to uh to one <laughs> of our coworkers over here. I mean, it's it's, it's a joke. It's, it's it is a joke. Silly. It's it's funny. We, we um, laugh when we start talking about this. But I, I think um no, I think N- Nadal absolutely unto by orders of magnitude the best clay court player ever. Um but again, I think the fact that he had this mental turnaround and six weeks ago, I mean, we're not talking about the, the, the comeback year. I mean, we're talking about four or five weeks ago. He really looked like, I mean, I think pe- most people would have taken Djokovic when Brene Stubbs was here. She took team. I mean, it really looked like Rafa was struggling. And the big question was, would he get his groove back in Paris? And, and he also he just, has struggled a little bit with injuries this year, um, which I think he has every year. But he, he d- it did not seem to be bothered um, as much as in years past. I mean, he's won French Open with tape all over his knees and, mm-hmm. you know, really, really struggling physically. Um, it didn't feel as physically difficult for him this year, even though he's constantly, I mean, his game is a, he's just always working hard and, and toiling out there, but didn't seem so, so much so in, in this tournament. As long as we're trafficking cliches, as long as that's a theme <laughs> of uh, today's <laughs> podcast, this, this Brad Gilbert notion that you, I think he's the first time I ever heard this. It's, it's very true. You you can only lose a major the first week. You can't win it. Um, pace yourself. But the flip side of that is these run-up matches, what happens in the gestalt of the tournament, all over seven matches, I think that's really relevant. And the fact that he played well, the fact that, as you said, he didn't have a top 100 opponent until the third round. The weather was congenial. He played on th- at the times of day he wanted to play. He didn't have the crazy Djokovic team match, which was broken up overnight. I mean, everything Right. Could scarcely have, I mean, he couldn't have scripted it better. He gets Federer, and it's an action-packed match, but it's sort of swirly, dusty conditions, and he's the better player on clay and was the better player that day. He did lose that one set, but again, he was up two sets to love, and it didn't seem like he was particularly threatened. So I, I think what happened in the previous six matches was, was relevant. Um, I think team deserves a lot of credit for not only getting to the final, but withstanding Djokovic. I mean, imagine getting your serve broken against a number one player in the world deep in the fifth set and then coming back to win the match. Um, for a guy who'd played whatever, I think it was five five straight days of tennis, one, two, three, four straight days of tennis, uh, team looked, he didn't, I mean, he looked physically defeated in the end, but who wouldn't be? But those first hour of tennis was terrific. You never would have known this guy had played a five-set final that had wrapped up the previous day, so I give team credit. And then he comes in on Sunday and plays a really great first set against Rafa, um, which I thought was a good indication of him not just coming in and saying, oh, I made it here, good for me, and, you know, I'm, I'm cool with being runner-up. I think he, he really did, he, you know, he was so fatigued, and as you say, after that craziness against Djokovic, he really did come out, and then obviously he won the second set, but then after that, it was yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I always like talking to you after. I always like talking to you, but I particularly <laughs> like talking to you after these majors because it's very strange to cover these things. And you're running around in a hundred directions, and there's some things that are very obvious that you miss. You happen to be on court five, or you're not. Your Twitter feed. You, you're off Twitter for two hours. Um, you know, sometimes you have, you have reporters walk into a press conference and ask the losing player, "How come you were so successful today?" And everyone giggles and says, what a moron. But the truth is, you could hardly keep track of all the results when you're when you're working. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I always like how you 
mediate and process these events. What else struck you following this on social media, watching, I, I assume, Tennis Channel? Yes. Plug? Well, yeah, because I'm, I'm here at the office, and so I've got the nice little TV next to my desk. So I come in. I'm nice and early. And there's actually no one here, so I could put the volume up and not bother anyone, and, and it's nice. I saw you, you know, out there on the court doing those post, post-match interviews, which I imagine are quite difficult, uh, especially with 30, 30 seconds between, you know, last ball, grab the bags, and then they're right to you. So there's kudos a, on those. Hey, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I would say the risk-reward ratio is a little skewed for those. Uh, <laughs> there's a finite number of questions you can ask someone when they're just leaving the court. You can't say... Uh, you know, tell me about what questions you answered about yourself today. I mean, right. it's kind of short and sweet. That's but, why uh, you asked Sloan anyways. Stevens about Indian food well, and, Sloan's you know. an exception. <laughs> uh, but but um, what, what else struck me? Apart from Rafa, apart, apart from Rafa doing his Rafa thing and apart from Ash Barty, which I thought was a really nice story, what, uh, what else struck you? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, I mean, stepping back uh, one day later, just Ash Barty versus the doll, as we were saying, just the, the difference between – the two of those victories um you know i thought the funny funny photo floating around of course so the, the of, of little ash barty but the the funnier uh thing about that is that that was ash barty two years before rafa won his <laughs> first right. rolling garros <laughs> right. title so that to me sort of summed up the whole uh tournament and you know that picture of her is so adorable so um that was something that was like all over uh and all over the feeds and everything but um one thing that was kind of a theme throughout the tournament was the the teenagers the the younger mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. 20 and un- under really uh came out and made a big difference this tournament and I thought that you know especially Amanda Nisimova and Sophia Kennan um two Americans that really I think the kind of announced themselves and surprisingly at the French Open um I thought it was thought it was good it's so funny because a few years ago I mean the, the irony is that on the men's side team was trying to be the this is this is incredible. Yes. <laughs> the first major winner. I mean, he he was only one player I think in their twenties has even made a major final. Yeah. On the men's side. Uh, uh, no. One um, active player, right? Ronich. He's. I thought. Check check the birth date there. Um, but I think you're right. I, I thought he was the other one, but maybe maybe but it's no, not so maybe it's not twenty. Yeah, right, twenty eight years old. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, but uh, so no on the men's side, no player in their twenties has won a major, which is just incredible. Right. And yet you had this onslaught of young players and these teenagers. I think you're right. A few years ago, we were talking about this. Um, I, I credit my colleague uh, and friend Jim Courier because we were talking about, we said, sport is just too physical. And Tracy Austin at age 16 winning a major, that's crazy. Chang, 17, it'll never happen again. And I think Jim said, look, it'll happen when it happens. And these things go in cycles. And so we have this unprecedented mature field. On the men's side, I mean, every event there's a new record for how many 30-somethings are in the draw, and Feliciano Lopez has played in his 900th <laughs> major, and, and Venus is pushing forward. I mean, we have all these storylines, but we also have had recently this onslaught of young players. Yeah. And um, I think you're right. that And Isamova, uh, Marketa Vondrasova is a teenager, yeah. and it's ironic that Felix did not play. Right. And, uh, and Chapovalov did not play, and Bianca Andreescu teenager who won Indian Wells is, is now unfortunately injured. injured so it could have yeah. by point being it could, it could have been even more of a youth brigade uh, right but I think line. it was almost a new a new group um, a group that maybe was under the Andrescu's and, and the FAA's um, you know in previous tournaments that kind of were not really finding their footing and, and I thought it was nice to see some of those players um, really go far I mean Kennan 
beating Serena was. Um, I give her a lot of credit yeah, for uh, exactly standing that. We had we had we had her on here, so it was cool that she, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, a little beyond the baseline magic maybe. Felix uh, would offset that, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> but um, that's true. No, I I think um, I think that an- an- you know Anna Samova reached the second week in Australia, and it was a nice story, and she's from New Jersey and everyone sort of in now she's in Florida, everyone sort of learned a bit about the backstory to, to back that up two tournaments in a row. And she, she had the toughest match. I mean, she played Ash Barty tougher than anyone. I mean, she yeah. was up a set in three love and then sort of disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very nice tournament for, uh, for Anna Samova as well. If she were to win a major, that would not be right. I was going to say bright future, bright future for her. And I think, um, you know, that's a good thing for American tennis as well. Another thing I wanted to you you touched on this a little bit in your fifty thoughts, but something that I'm always interested in in this side of the game. But I thought that Ash Barty's win for me put into perspective a little bit more about the mental health aspect of of tennis and the fact that she took this two year hiatus from tennis. And um, you know, a lot of people are saying that that's sort of what helped her get back to this point um, and and win her first major. And so I think it's incredible uh, that she is, A, so young and, and was, you know, basically taking a break from the sport at 21. Right. Um, and just the whole idea of, of burnout and having to, you know, like like I said, you touched on it with certain players saying, you know, I, I just feel like tennis makes me crazy sometimes. I'm just constantly going, going, going. And I, I'm, I wonder... Um, you know, you, you, we see players get hurt, and that sort of forces them out of the game. But I wonder if uh, Barty will become a little bit of a model for people who, um, you know, just need a little bit of a break. And I, I think it's, I think it's great. It's like a gap year. No, I think, I think exactly. it's a great point. I mean, I think part of this is that this is a nice offshoot, unintentional as it might be. I mean, this is a nice offshoot of careers lasting into their mid-30s now. You don't have this pressure to sort of make hay, and once you hit 26, uh, it's all downhill from there. I mean, if you know you're entering a profession where your career could be 15, 16, 17, 18 years, yeah, if you don't have the passion for the sport, take a year off and see if it comes back. Um, I can't remember a player, I mean, I think I said this earlier, right? I mean, I I can't remember a player whose title has been more warmly right. received. I mean, the affection, men, women, Rod Laver, legends, been players she's beaten. And I think part of that is just who she is. She plays a style that the veterans like. She's completely, I, I think, unflustered is the word. I mean, there's just, just there's no drama to her. She's a complete professional. She seems delightful. She's sort of the, the classic Aussie. She doesn't grunt. I mean, just sort of you check all the boxes about the qualities we like in a player. She plays doubles. She comes in. She is an athlete. She doesn't argue. I mean, I saw nobody talked about this, and I don't, may, maybe um, this wasn't the TV match at the time, but I was courtside thinking I was going to interview Anna Samova after her semifinal win. And um, she conceded, she, Barty had won the first five games against Anna Samova in 15 minutes. I mean, it looked like two, it looked like she was playing a junior. Mm-hmm. And then Anna Samova has this charge and ends up winning the second, win, winning the first set. And as this lead is slipping away, Barty conceded a call. She went over, checked a line, and just basically said to the chair, don't even bother coming down. I'm, she won the point. Mm-hmm. Ball was in. Um, that didn't get talked about. But little gestures like that, deep in a, in a stressful part of a Grand Slam semifinal and you're conceding points, that's how you become well-liked. And I, I think the question for Barty, I mean, it's like you, know, you write a smash debut novel and immediately the question is, what's your, your next, next book one? coming out? So g- give her... Uh, 
give her a week to celebrate. Let's toast Ash Barty. But I do think we need to pivot to Wimbledon and say, well, wait a second here. She has a nice all-court game, and she has nice touch around the net, and she has that forehand, and she stays low to the ground. I mean, I don't know. She's five foot five, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, the defending champ, Angie Kerber, is having these ankle issues, and Serena Williams is still clearly dealing with some injury herself. And you sort of go through the checklist, too, and you say, well, is there any reason why Ash Barty, now number two in the world, can't back this up? So uh, we give her a week to celebrate, but I also feel like sometimes uh, Ostapenko or, I mean, sometimes a player will win a major and it becomes, wow, that's a crazy two weeks, lightning in a bottle. I think with Ash Barty, the conversation should be how many more of these has she got in her? If she's doing this on clay, um, why isn't she capable of doing this again on, on grass or as we saw in Miami on, on our courts? I was going to ask you about the the comparison between Ash Party and Ostapenko because I think the you go back to you know surprising winners um, and obviously obviously Ostapenko is the most recent one but it does feel as you say very different a very different win than than Ostapenko's was did did the the stadium feel yeah energized I know weird... the emptiness was a a big topic I also wanted to ask you about but. Um, what was the the atmosphere like? I think you know it it that women's final was played after this super dramatic men's final. The two of the top four seeds, you had Djokovic going for the Novak Slam. It went five sets. A fifth set was full of drama, and then the women's final came on, and sort of the stands weren't. Everybody sort of took a break after the men's match, and it didn't have a ton of electricity. I think mm-hmm. there was. It wasn't a particularly dramatic match. I mean, the outcome really wasn't right. in doubt. Vondra Strove is a very nice player, and she's clever, and she's a lot of fun to watch. And I, I got to talk to her a little bit. She's really, she's very cool, but she just didn't have it. And so you did not have a spellbinding final. I think it was more sort of t- tip your hat, Ash Barty, and, and mm-hmm. admiration. I don't think the stands went crazy for her. I think next year she'll be very warmly received when she returns as the defending champion. It was a weird, and I don't, I mean, I'm curious how you how this played out here on on the grounds it was a bit of a strange tournament that you had this gorgeous new court you had new attendance records being set you sort of had this real sense at least for the first week and a half that the french open was really it sort of played itself up and maybe it had been slipping especially compared to the other majors it's the only major that doesn't have a roof it's far small it's by far the smallest major in terms of surface area in terms of the acreage Mm -hmm. um and this year you really had a sense that they sort of played itself back into contention. Mm-hmm. Very strong tournament. Again, this, this new court is gorgeous, and the grounds are changing. There's going to be a roof next year. And then it all sort of went to hell the last four or five days with some dubious scheduling. But again, I don't know if that's one of the things that we talk about in the you know in, in the press room and in TV circles and on the ground, if that made its way into the mainstream discussion. But it, it did seem like things went a little haywire at the end i think the empty stadiums are just such a killer i mean i know you're you're this is yeah this is a big one for you but i just think of um you know people in my family our friends that if uh you know i'm watching a match and i'm really into it and they walk by and they're like why the hell is there no one at this match (laughs) they don't want to pay attention you know and it's very different when you turn on the nba finals and people are getting you know they're they're throwing towels and running up and down the court and they're going crazy and like the whole place is electric it's a very different atmosphere and as a for for fans who you know 
fly in and fly out around the majors to see that kind of thing on this on the screen it does not make you want to watch it more and for me i'm sitting there like no no no, just sit down like exactly. i promise this is good stuff and oh, oh it's to like, your uh, oh i yeah. thought you went to the crowd yeah to your to your friends and family yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's like i have no i have nothing to stand on and it's really upsetting for me because i'm like come on tennis like i'm here advocating for yeah. you and it's maddening yeah it is I absolutely mean, maddening i mean part of it you're right it just it looks so bad. And one of these sort of intuitively, if people aren't bothering to show up in person, why should I be watching this at home? Right. Um, part of the frustration that it doesn't reflect what's really going on, that the grounds are absolutely right. packed and people are, you know, eight deep to watch mixed doubles. And every day, in part because of this new stadium, because of this new Mathieu court, attendance records were being set. But the people with the prime seats, the cameras are fixed right behind the baseline, and a lot of those are suites and corporate seats and federation right. seats. And it's crazy to me that there isn't some way for the tournament to come up with a mechanism. And there was a the report, um, I wish I were crediting, I don't have it in front of me, I should be crediting the reporter who found this. But we noticed that a lot of the ball kids for the Djokovic team match were sitting in the suites and clearly right. had been told, listen, as someone wearing nice clothes and silk and cashmere comes, you got to leave. But you right, guys right. fill this up. And clearly the tournament is aware of this and started addressing yeah, yeah. it. There was a report that, in fact, tournament employees were encouraged to fill vacant seats right, but not share that. it on social media. I just think there's got to be there's someone out there that has the ability way beyond mine to create some sort of algorithm that, you know, some of these apps, like you have like right. the Hotel Tonight or exactly. some of these things that resell the rooms when you know at low rates when they're – the hotel just wants to book them. I mean, it's the same idea. And I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to be it's, the advocate for this app. And we could we could sell it to every every major out there. I mean, come everybody on. Everybody would win. I, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. You could sit in a, a, in a in a room with people for, from each major and say, guys. It's crazy. Why and would you, you not want you know, this? You, uh, you know, you, you walk the grounds and people are there. It's, this is a bucket list trip for me, but I couldn't get Chatrier tickets. And I mean, I, I run into these people on the grounds. Right. And I, I can't tell you how often I talk to people. My dream is to get to the French Open. And here we have Federer and Nadal, dream matchup and you know, whatever. Yeah, 37 I mean, majors between them. Everything about the, this textured rivalry, 2019, the spot on the line for the final. And they started that match and it was 60% filled. Right. And you just want to bang your head. It's and that maddening. of all matches, I mean, come on. The I, think, I think part of the problem is that this is sort of a, a sports business issue in general. That if you look, where the where does the revenue come from, right? And more and more, it's media and sponsorship and tickets and the on-site, in-stadium, in-venue experience is less and less important, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you sort of follow where the money is, and it's really all about the media rights deal. So as long as Tennis Channel and NBC and Eurosport, everybody's paying rights fees, filling those seats probably a secondary importance but just it just looks but that doesn't make awful. sense why would a media partner or broadcast partner want to show something on the screen that well, is right. going That's to literally another, uh, deter the fan yeah, i mean like i said i can't get people to sit down next to me and watch it because they're like okay no one no one's there no one else wants to watch it i, I feel like i'm violating confidences with this story but uh, <laughs> maybe the statute of limitations over when the miami heat played um Early when LeBron was there in 2010, 2011, they had these first they had these bright yellow seats and then it's Miami. There's a whole scene. You never want to arrive. It's uncool to arrive early. You have this late arriving crowd and they also would take a long time at halftime and clearly go to the lounge. 
And the NBA went crazy, and they basically told the Miami Heat, first thing you've got to do, we can't have these bright yellow seats because when they're unoccupied, it's glaring. So they had to change their seat backs. And then the Miami Heat was pressured. I don't know how they ended up doing it, but the Miami Heat organization was pressured to fill those seats because David Stern and the NBA realized it looked really bad when NBA playoff games were going on and the camera was picking up these oceans of empty seats. And it's something tennis really needs to address. And again, the, the, the tragedy is that there are millions of tennis fans worldwide that would you know, chop off pinkies to watch Federer Nadal at a Grand Slam. And then you see entire rows behind the baseline unoccupied when the match starts. Right. And I think the big biggest difference between the majors like tennis and, and the majors and other sports is, you know, people will say, oh, well, you have a crappy team in the NFL. They're, they're not going to fill the stadium on Sunday. You know, why don't we do that for them? No, this is very different because this is literally a pinnacle like, you know, we call it the Super Bowl, whatever. This is a major in tennis. This is a really big deal. And there should I mean, th- there should not be this issue where you have a match starting and there's no one right. in the stadium. Yeah, I mean, the, the flip side is there's catering, there's hospitality. We always joke sort of the, the French l- lunch is undefeated in Paris. You, you can't somebody buys tickets and somebody's a corporate sponsor. You can't force them to go to their seats because uh, the match is about to start. But there's got to be a way that the fans who adopt, really adopt the whiteout, you know, like put put the white T-shirts on the chairs and <laughs> half the stadium's Free wearing t-shirts. white. And I don't know, and at least the appearance of uh Seats being filled by people in white T-shirts can help out a little bit. <laughs> I, I like the app suggestion. I think that's the way to do it. You oh, know what? Course. The hardcore I mean, fans come at the changeover when the BNP royalty wants to actually sit and watch tennis. Then you've got to give up your seat. But at least you don't have this eyesore of matches. Uh, you say these are Grand Slam semis. I mean, these are major, major historic <laughs> tennis matches that hundreds, you know, millions of people are watching all over the world. And yet... The people with the best seats in the house don't uh, haven't condescended to arrive yet. Bad luck. Anyway, um, we probably talked a little bit more about uh, <laughs> seating and venue than we anticipated. <laughs> um, anything else that uh, wh- what else is on my mind? I mean, you know, one thing we joked about. You did a very nice job. I want to give you credit and props and name checks. And uh, you mentioned Petra Martic. You mentioned Vardy. You mentioned. I mean, we sort of everybody proceeded with the premise, and I think it was absolutely correct that the women's field was wide open. I mean, I, we, we did a pregame show with Lindsay, Lindsay Davenport, Joe, oh, any of 25 women could win this thing. You know how many top 25 women were in the semis? One, Barty. Mm-hmm. So uh, the field was even wider open than, um, than we had anticipated. I don't think that's, I mean, I, I, I rather like that, especially when you can counterbalance that with the predictability of the men's. Yeah. So the men's had all four top seeds made the semifinals, the women's field wide open. I think those two scenarios really play well off each other. But, uh, Jamie, you did a very nice job with uh, some sleeper picks. <laughs> I'm going to give you one uh, one name that I was kind of shocked at for this tournament was Joanna Conta. She and, yeah. and the, the only reason I say that was because this is a player who in the – Last four years at the French Open, she lost in the first round. And before that, she was playing qualies at the French. Never won a match. Never won a main draw match before this year. And now she's a semifinalist. And if that, you know, and she's had her ups and downs and everything else. And I know she has this kind of newfound love for clay and, you know, good for her. But I think just um, she really kind of bottles up the idea of this wide open women's draw and also the fact that, you can kind of come out from anywhere and 
you have a, a good week, as you always say, the ability to string together the five, six, seven matches, and you're all of a sudden you're a semifinalist. Um, and so she was one one surprising result for me. Agree. She was uh, outside the top forty when she went to Rome, so she very nearly wasn't seated. Had a very nice Rome um, reach the final, and then um, and then obviously put it together, win five matches in Paris. So w- so if you're Joe Conta who you're right. I mean, she'd been to Grand Slam semis before, but she had not won a match at Roland Garros. Suddenly she wins five matches. She, she played quite well throughout. But then uh, she was up 5-3 in both sets against Vondrasova, 19 years old, couldn't close either set. Uh, how do you leave? If you're, if you're Joe Conta, how do you leave the French Open? And someone gave you truth serum. Yeah, not, not feeling so good. Um, Don't you think? I yeah, mean, I, no. th- I thought she sort of said, listen, it was a, tremendously successful campaign and i came close but not close enough credit to her but i gotta think i think it's a like big that opportunity i was gonna go. say the missed opportunity feeling um you know you, you you say wow this is the best i've ever done here it's this is incredible um you know i've i stayed all the way through the second week but i don't know it's uh like you say she was 19 and and against ash barty in the final von Drusva just didn't really have anything left there and so that's unfortunate because you think maybe if it's Kanta, it's a little bit more of a battle there. But I, you know, Vondrasova just one last getaway thought on her. She's very fun to watch, and she's not this heavy slugging. I mean, there's a lot of cleverness to her game, and she's, you know, these tremendous drop shots and angles, and um, this sort of lefty funk. I think people will see that. Casual fans will say, "Oh, you know, Ash Barty isn't she the one who came back from cricket and again won Miami? Now she's number two, and she beat some Czech no name in the final and." Um, Vondrasova is a very nice player. It's just a pity that she didn't really show off her gifts. Uh, she, she did for six matches, but not the seventh, which hap- also happened to be her first match on the big court. Um, but uh, I, I do not think it was a fluke that Vondrasova made the final. I think we'll hear more about her. Um, Any other takeaways from you? Um, no, I mean, I'm curious how much all this this Dominic team made it on the Whoopi Goldberg. Ain't <laughs> no one heard of Dominic team. Um <laughs> That was sort of one of these s- stories that, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, again, you, you have the, this always happens at these events. You have these sort of funny soap opera stories the first few days, and then they completely get subsumed by the superior tennis at the back end of the tournament. Um, but I do think that was a little sort of behind. I'll tell you two things about that. One, it was a little behind-the-curtain look into some of the complexities. Let's set the scene first because we were talking about this earlier. So for for everyone, we're talking about – Dominic team getting kicked out of uh, the presser room because Serena had to come in and Serena had just lost. Dominic team was, you know, getting ready for his next match. He won, as you say, he had, he need to uh, go eat, recover, sleep and do everything and uh, made it onto the view. It made it onto the view. I think uh, their, their take was rather interesting. Actually, I heard apparently Chris Russo, who's been on the podcast before, had a great riff about that that we have to go find. Um, the way The View interpreted it was Serena's the queen and ain't no one heard of Dominic Team. so <laughs> what's he complaining about? Um, I mean, it sounds to me like really the mistake was from the organizer's standpoint and you don't interrupt a press conference, but especially you don't interrupt a press conference of a guy still in the tournament for a player who is out of the tournament. But it also seemed kind of much ado about nothing. But I, I do think one thing that's interesting is a lot of times in tennis, we say, why can't we get leaders from the outside? All these insular tennis community, we need someone with a fresh perspective. We need to bring in someone from another sports league or even from another industry. And 
I thought that view clip was emblematic of some of the difficulties. And if you know tennis and you know how this works and you understand press conferences and the sort of um, the choreography that goes on behind the scenes, it's absurd. Dominic Team is obviously a player worthy of a full respect. It's a pretty absurd take on the view. But I did think it was interesting insight into how something that seems normal in the tennis community when viewed from afar plays out so completely different. I think that's also one of the reasons why tennis tends to hire from within. Because if you brought that take to a tennis meeting, people would roll their eyes. I mean, I remember there was an executive once who said to me sort of jokingly, oh, I can't even remember. Is Indian Wells the one in California or is that the Florida one? (laughs) And I'm thinking, you're going to get eaten alive now. (laughs) So um, it it was interesting to me how sort of tennis people interpreted the Serena team situation versus the women on The View. But if you haven't seen it, um, it does make for four minutes of comedy. It's a different world. Different it's, world. It's a different world. Um, you know, but you either you either embrace it and you, you learn the the little weird things about tennis or <laughs> you think that Indian Wells is in Florida. Exactly. <laughs> um, ain't no one heard of Dominic Team. All right. Maybe <laughs> they have now. Uh, all right. I think that's about it. I mean, um, Men's doubles wide open. Women's doubles, I feel we should give some props to uh, Kiki Mladenovic and Tamia Babos, who won the women's doubles, and Mladenovic, who's having a rough go of in singles, um, is now the number one, one doubles player. Yeah. She also uh, won, a, won a major, had to go shower, and then go sit in the uh, the, the friends and relatives box cheering on Dominic team. Um, no, I mean, I think, again, my takeaway, Rafa, amazing, good for Ash Barty, and this big three is just a monster. I mean, there are entire generations of players that are not going to sniff a major. And we've got Roger with 20, Rafa now with 18, and Novak with 15, the youngest of the bunch. And this big three plot just keeps keeps chugging along. This you've, is this is a juggernaut. You've got uh, way too early Wimbledon picks for us? I have way too early Wimbledon <laughs> picks. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I think... Ash Barty? No, I, I like Ash Barty's chances. I do. Um, I, I worry about, so we didn't talk much about Serena. I'm a little concerned about her. I mean, the grass is probably her best bet, but she just did not look the match like she was is, moving. Yeah, the, the, the match play, the movement. I mean, I feel like there's probably not an injury injury, but some tweaks that she's high-roading, I mean, but she did not look like a player capable of winning 14 sets of tennis. I think it's like getting the rust off, you yeah. know? I mean, it's 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 squeaky joints and, and, and things that just aren't operating as smooth as if you're, you know, when you're when you're playing matches every day. And I think she realizes that. Um, yeah. Ooh, and third, 37 and a half is a big number. Um, men's side, I don't know. I mean, so Raonich doesn't play um, the French Open. Right. And Kevin Anderson doesn't play the French Open. Right. And Chilich, who reached the finals two years ago, went out early. And I, I mean, Stan... At Wimbledon, I, I don't know if you saw Stan Vavrinka picks up Danny Valverdu for some grass court uh, Earlier uh, today, coaching. Right. Um, just announced that right a few hours ago. But uh, but Stan has never been a particular. I think he just the, the time he needs, you know, the, just doesn't get enough, enough time to set up the way he does on clay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you do you see anyone other than the big three winning Wimbledon? No, and that's why I'm asking you if you if you're to pick of the three right now. I'm kind of thinking Novak. Um, yeah, I I think Roger. Clay court decisions to play clay completely validated. He got match play. He got in some nice matches. He lost to Nadal on clay. No shame there. I think he goes ought to go to Wimbledon feeling very good about the state of his game and also the state of his prep work. Um, I yeah I don't know. I mean I I think I would probably say Novak Roger 
Rafa in that order at Wimbledon. But I hmm. have a very hard time. Again, best of five is a big distinction. That's one of our favorite points to make. I don't know. Do you do you see anyone outside the uh, the big three winning Wimbledon? No, 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 no. I don't. I I agree with you. Um, maybe switch that order a little bit. I think that. What do you have? Yeah. I would maybe say Federer, Novak, Nadal, um, but maybe. Maybe I think the the draw obviously is going to have a huge impact on that. Um, so as you say, with some other people returning, and then just kind of who how it all shakes out, which is is, is usually the case. So. Yeah, I don't. I mean, t- team on grass probably not. Zverev, who knows where where he is right? I mean, just kind of go down the list. Sitsipas maybe, but you kind of go down the list. And um, I I just want to uh, the, the the longevity thing. We we can't make a big enough deal about. It. If you had said to Roger Federer. When he wins his first Wimbledon in 2003, and remember he was he was kind of a late bloomer. Um, I mean, he was already you know, whatever it was, almost 22 years old. If you'd said to him in 2003, "Hey, in 2019, you're still going to be playing Wimbledon, you're going for your ninth, and uh, people are t- pegging you as the favorite," it would be comedy show. You'd yeah. be laughed out of the room. And yet uh, here we are. We're talking about three players with more than 50 majors among them, and we're scratching our heads to try and find someone who might mount a challenge it's an incredible time i think it's it is it's incredible and i i'm really interested to see um how that changes the mindset of the younger players coming up and we talk about it a little bit but you know now they're seeing careers extend beyond 30s beyond 35 and as a 16 17 18 19 20 year old i think that really changes your perspective you know i think maybe before there was a lot more you know, pedal to the metal in terms of oh, I gotta, I gotta go, 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 get, get everything done now, and maybe a more laid back approach um, is is interesting, and and there's a uh, an interesting contrast there because did the the big three do that when they were that young? I right. I don't think so. So I I think it's interesting to see how that is going to impact the you want me to uh, younger generation. Can I devil's advocate that? Yes. What does it do to your career when you have just been demoralized event after event after event, and you have this equivalent of a glass ceiling. You know, you can work hard and put in all your hours and write great briefs, but you're never going to be partner because there are these three guys ahead of you who just own the partnership. And if you're Kane Shikori and you win these five setters and then you play Rafa and it looks like you're playing different sports, or if you're, I mean, Dimitrov is always everybody's favorite whipping boy for these kinds of scenarios but even Zverev I mean these guys you know Tsitsipas is a great player he beat Roger he beat Rafa earlier this year he loses to Stan who loses to Roger who loses to Rafa I mean what does it do to your psyche when you're trying to win one of these and every single major it's reinforced that there are three guys that are just better than you I mean I I don't think you go totally fatalist but it's got to come into Dominic team's mind late in Right, yeah. These sets. I mean, when he's, I mean, I thought that win over Djokovic was an absolute signature win, in part because it's, if he had lost that match, boy, that would have, that's the kind of loss that would have taken months to recover from. But what does it do to all these guys, ages, you know, literally 30 on down, mm-hmm. knowing that as good as they are, as many 500 titles as they win, there are these three guys that are just going to make life really, really difficult. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but it's just the unfortunate 
if you grew up in that era and you played in that era with those guys. Right, right. I mean, because some, some of them can kind of say, oh, well, maybe maybe the you know the light at the end of the tunnel is is just time. One, I mean, they're not going to play forever. They might play close to forever. Oh, aren't they? But No, you're right. But, but that's, uh, you know, for some of the younger people, maybe that's the only thing that they can really turn to. But uh, someone like Nisha Corey, for example, I mean, there's not much time there between them and and he's you know struggling and has struggled with his own injuries and and things like that so you know it's not like he has an infinite uh length on on his career so i don't know i don't know what that does to your uh to your self-belief i mean because if you're if you're in that you know if you're in that partner uh you know and you're in that that role um you you probably just Maybe yeah, leave the you, job and go somewhere no, else. No, I think and, it's and you. You go to work every day. You're well compensated. You like what you do. It's not breaking rocks. It's a good, you know. Kenya Shakori is living a great life. But how many more defeats do you take before you sort of start to say deep down, "I'm never going to get one of these, am I?" Anyway, um, just that's something a, that's to a uh, sad on. note oh, to end sorry. this podcast. Uh, no, on. <laughs> I mean the, the, the flip side of this is what an amazing goal. I mean, we we say golden era, but that's exactly what it is. I mean, the, the flip side of all this is just what an incredible time. And if you'd said not only, you know, I talked before about how this Roy Emerson record when I'm dating myself, but 20 years ago this was the great question in tennis, and Pete Sampras surpassed it, and then three guys have surpassed Pete Sampras. If you said Three guys are going to win 2018 and 15 majors respectively. They're going to bat these things around and almost like a cartel, and they're all doing it at the same time. I mean, that to me is what's absolutely remarkable about this. Over the think about this. This sport's been played for you know since we started tallying these things. It's still been well over 100 years, and the three leaders on the men's side are all doing this simultaneously, and they were all all born within basically five years of each other. That's incredible. All right. How's that for an upbeat note? <laughs> That's better. <laughs> uh, long live the big three. All right. That does it for this week. This was a long, uh, sort of, uh, I would say, discursive French Open podcast. Yeah. Clay Court Tennis uh, in conversation form. Thanks, Jamie. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. Uh, we'll do it again next week. We will uh, look for, I think we have a, a guest lined up, but I don't want to make any uh, undue promises. Always a pleasure hearing from you guys. Keep the suggestions coming. Follow us. Leave reviews. Um, where can people uh, sign up if they so choose? They can go on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. We're available everywhere. Just search Beyond the Baseline. You will find us. Leave us some reviews. Leave us some reviews, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Thanks, everyone, and uh, have a good week, everyone.